in the end, we're all together in the truth. And when you have these long haul heroes, when I talk to them, and I describe long haul heroes are people that have you know worked at things for a long time, committed to things for a long time, it eventually leads to a certain level of peace because you are who you are. And it has been revealed. And anyone who's been in a long, happy marriage knows that. I am who I am. I can't hide this anymore. We are all together in the truth about who I am and who they are. And there's a peace that comes with that after the terror. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another new episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. If you're new to Crazy Money, this is the show where we explore the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning through the lens of our guests' expertise and or money journeys. You know, it's not always just about money, and today's guest is a good example of that. His name is Pete Davis. He is the author of a new book called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. He is a graduate of the Harvard Law School, which is a law school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in case you hadn't heard of it. And he graduated from there, and at that graduation, he gave a speech, which became the cornerstone of this book. And that speech has been viewed over 30 million times on YouTube and other video outlets. When you hear my conversation with him today, you will be like, oh, I get it. That guy exudes positivity and love and goodness and a sincere desire to bring humanity closer together. I found this book highly compelling, a great reminder that joy and freedom in life are sometimes and often counterintuitively found by committing to places, people, and other ways of living. We'll talk more about him in just a minute. I want to say hello to all the new members of the Crazy Money Listeners Group on Facebook. That would be Max Barfus, Myron Santos, Jeremy Meesey, Rachel Monas Levine. Nice to have you all on board. I look forward to chatting with you in that group soon. Comedy is coming up. I have these shows where I stand on a stage with a microphone and try to make the people in front of me who are sitting in close proximity in a closed space together. I try to make those people laugh. That's one of the things I do when I'm not talking into a microphone by myself in the guest room over our garage. Upcoming shows around the Atlanta area, Sweetwater Brewery this Wednesday, July 14th, Bastille Day. I'll be doing all my Bastille Day material. The Buckhead Shake Shack, new show at the Buckhead Shake Shack. My career is on a, just a tear, the trajectory we have it here. July 15th, upstairs in the beautiful shops of Buckhead. Roll Call Theater in Ponce City Market, July 16th and 17th. July 31st, Best of Atlanta at Laughing Skull Lounge. Next month, for those of you who happen to be members of the Capital City Club here in Atlanta, hello, how are you? Apologies for all my noisy chatter at the pool. But I have shows coming up there. We've sold out three shows. Well, not quite sold. We've sold out 2.65 shows. August 19th, 25th, and 26th. If there's a whole bunch more people who want to come, we might just add a fourth show. So... By all means, click on that email you got last week and sign up. Put yourself on the wait list if the show is sold out. To those of you who aren't members at that club, hey, are you members of a club? Are you members of uh, Moose Lodge, a Shriners organization? Do you want to have comedy at one of your clubs? And if so, can you handle material that is neither squeaky clean nor politically correct? You can. You're an adult. You don't have to be swayed or offended by things outside of yourself. You have agency. Then by all means, send me an email at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Would love to talk to you about doing a private show for you. All right. Is that it? No. This weekend, I had the great privilege of meeting up for the first time since pre-pandemic with some of my very good friends from business school, the Tuck School of Business there in Hanover, New Hampshire. We lost one of the core members of our group over quarantine, the wonderful, hilarious, and always entertaining Lore Murphy Peterson passed away. 
And damn it, uh, was that a loss for all of us because she was our den mom. She was our big sister. She was the funniest person in every room where she was. And man, it was, it, it was just a huge loss. And this was the first time we all got to be together and celebrate her, remember her, and shed a few tears, give a lot of hugs in the meantime. And I bring all this up just to say, you know what? Quarantine reminds us that life is short. We should all be out there gathering rosebuds and doing all we can to enjoy life while we have each other. So get out there, put some time on your calendar with some of your best friends today. Do it. All right, let's talk about the joy of commitment with Pete Davis. Pete, as I mentioned, is the author of a new book called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. His theory is basically that in a world where most of us, or at least a whole bunch of us, spend our lives browsing, always looking to make the perfect decision that that is not a path toward happiness. Rather, and somewhat counterintuitively, picking a place, picking a path, committing to a relationship, a religion, or a way of being in the world is actually the path toward being a more deep, substantive human being. You may not agree with everything Pete has to say in this interview, but I know you'll find him to be a highly compelling person who exudes good, positive energy and a sincere desire to bring humanity closer together. Pete is a writer and civic advocate from Falls Church, Virginia. He works on civic projects aimed at deepening American democracy and solidarity. He's the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, a state policy organization focused on raising up ideas that deepen democracy. And he's currently co-producing a documentary on the life and work of civic guru Robert Putnam, whose book you probably know is called Bowling Alone. Not his only book, but probably the most famous book, Bowling Alone, which documents the erosion of social bonds in America, an issue that Pete is deeply committed to, as you'll hear in this conversation, which, by the way, is far less political than it might sound. Pete's Harvard Law School graduation speech, A Counterculture of Commitment, which served as the cornerstone for the book dedicated. That video has been viewed more than 30 million times. Pete's a really interesting guy. I know you're going to enjoy getting to know him through this conversation. Please enjoy my chat with Pete Davis. Pete Davis, welcome to Crazy Money. So glad to be here. Thank you so much, Paul. Pete, on your LinkedIn profile, you've chosen the overall description of yourself as neighbor. Why did you choose that word? <laughs> Well, you know, the honest story is that is the core of my ideology of, you know, what we should be doing in the world. The deeper story that I don't have to get into too much is I'm a practicing Catholic and I believe the like secular way of describing the vision of that moral view of the world is that our job is to be neighbors to each other. And the kind of secular version of that is, you know, I'm very inspired by Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, and Dorothy Day and others who have embodied what it means to be a neighbor. I see my goal is to turn strangers into neighbors. So if there's one way to describe what I'm trying to do in my public life, it is that. So that's why I put it on there. And how does that manifest in the way you approach the world? In my day-to-day -day life, you know, I have a belief that our job is to treat everyone on this earth as neighbors. And so just in my day-to-day -day life, you know, when someone's approaching you, you know, treat them like you would a neighbor. I think that's a really precise phrase because it's a little more realistic than just, you know, say everyone's part of your family. We're all brothers, which I also believe, but kind of in your day-to-day -day practical life. I don't know if you can really do, you know, everyone is part of my family that passes by me on the street, but it's also not everyone's a stranger that is out to get me or everyone's just someone that I might interact with in a 
fair, distant way like you should properly with strangers. It's this middle place between stranger and family, which is neighbor, which is, you know, we're trying to be in public life together. We're trying to be in a community together. And how can we make this community work? So that's it on the day-to-day life. On the public life, like work life, one of the two things I care deeply about as a vision for what I'm trying to do with my work is to build what I call American solidarity, deep in American solidarity. How can we build institutions, build our politics, build our economy, build our culture in a way that results in more people turning strangers into neighbors, more people feeling connected to each other, more people feeling like each other's destiny is connected to their destiny. Okay, so you've just published a book called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. How do the concepts of neighborliness and infinite browsing coexist or compete against each other? Let's start with, you know, what do I define by infinite browsing? So the best way to talk about that is to talk about the opening metaphor of my book and the speech that inspired the book, which is, I might have started this interview off talking about very abstract things. This is a very concrete thing in people's lives. So I'm sure you've had this experience, listeners. It's late at night and you're browsing Netflix or Hulu or whatever, looking for something to watch. And you're having a hard time deciding. You scroll through different titles, you read a few reviews, but you just can't commit to watching any given show or movie. And suddenly you wake up from your haze 30 minutes later and find out you've been stuck in infinite browsing mode and you're too tired to watch anything So you cut your losses and fall asleep and you never picked a darn movie. So this is the metaphor I use to talk about infinite browsing mode and much more important things than just the Netflix home screen, which is this spirit of keeping your options open in everything in life. And when it comes to causes or places or communities or institutions or crafts or people, it's browsing around trying to maximize the perfect thing instead of the opposite of browsing which is committing, dedicating yourself to a particular thing outside of yourself. And I listed off some of those things you can dedicate yourself to causes, places, crafts, communities, institutions, people. And so what does this connect to neighborliness? Well, you know, so many of the things we can dedicate ourselves to involve the project of, you know, building the great neighborhood. One is commitment to people. You have to be dedicated to people over the long run to build these relationships. Relationships takes time. This is not, you know, the call to neighborliness is not just a call to be friendly with strangers. It's a call to actually build relationships with the people around you. Second, you know, one of those commitments is commitments to places. It's a call to not just be neighbors, but to build neighborhoods, communities of people in a place that over time are tended to grown, envisioned, realize how do we design our streets? How do we get a park for our neighborhood? How do we have annual events that bring people close together? How do we resolve disputes, not through just quitting and hiding away, but through transforming ourselves through conversations? That all requires commitment to places too. You know, then there's much more grand things, types of commitments I talk to, which are like these big causes or building big institutions, which eventually help kind of are needed as well to build neighborhoods and uh, neighborly culture. What are the obstacles to committing? So I think the first, I put these into two parts. So one is, and I start my first chapter after the intro saying this exact line, which is, I want to give browsing its due, which one of the (laughs) obstacles to committing is browsing is good. You know, that's why my case is against infinite browsing, not browsing. And so what's good about browsing? Browsing comes with flexibility. It's chill to browse. You know, you don't have to marry the first person you went on a date with. 
Browsing also can lead to one of the most magical things in a human life. Authenticity, the discovery of what really resonates with you and the discovery of what doesn't and getting rid of those involuntary inherited commitments. And finally, browsing is a lot of fun. It leads to a lot of novelty, a lot of new experiences. And so one of the hard things about committing is browsing is good, you know, but eventually all of those pleasures of browsing are haunted by pains. So flexibility is haunted by choice paralysis. When you jump from thing to thing, it becomes hard to commit to anything because you're haunted by all the alternatives you could have chosen and you tasted a little bit of. Authenticity, which seems like there's nothing bad about it, but one of the things that authenticity can be haunted by is a certain sense of spiritual isolation. If you never join up with anything bigger than yourself, if you never enter into relationship with anything outside of yourself because you're worried it threatens your authentic, true individual self, you might find yourself without a community, without any sense of meaning, without any sense of purpose. And finally, not that profound to say, novelty eventually curdles into the boredom of shallowness. Scroll through a hundred TikTok videos. They are the most interesting things. That's why they're on the top of the algorithm. You know, most interesting thing in the world are those videos, you know, that have been in a contest with millions of other videos to be the hundred videos you scroll through. And yet by the hundredth shocking video or interesting fact or funny quip, it's boring because eventually we crave deeper novelties, the novelty of becoming an expert of a craft the novelty of um, celebrating your 10th anniversary, the novelty of becoming an elder in a community. So eventually that pleasure of browsing is haunted by these pains and you want to commit. So then though, this is the second half of the problem. You want to commit, but then there are fears. There's a fear of regret. Um, I'm worried that 20 years from now, I'm going to wake up and wish I had committed to something else. There's a fear of missing out. I'm happy with what I committed to, but I'm worried about the responsibilities that come with it that will prevent me from chasing the latest hot new thing. And finally, one we don't talk about enough, last part here, the fear of association. We fear that if I commit to something outside of myself, it'll threaten my identity or my reputation or my sense of control. You know, I won't join that political cause. I won't join that religion. I won't marry that person because I'm worried about what people will think of me, or I'm worried I'm not the type of person who does that. Or frankly, I'm worried that'll bring a lot of messiness to my life because other people will be involved. And so that's the fear of association. So that stops us from committing to even when we know it's the right thing to do. All right. I want to show you something I wrote as I was reading your book, page two of text. Okay. In the margins, I'm not sure you can see, can you see what I wrote there? Paradox of choice. Yes. And this is before you even mentioned it. And the reason why it was top of mind is because Barry Schwartz has been a guest on this program before. And what I love about his work is that it is non-intuitive. It is counterintuitive, actually, to the American spirit. We believe that the more choice we have, the better off we are. Can you remind us what his studies taught love, us and how it relates to your point in the whole book? I love Barry Schwartz. He's a hero of mine. He actually reached out to me after the book came out and I was so touched by it. I see this in the lineage of his books. And what I love about him, he's a professional psychologist and psychological researcher, and he connects the micro experience of psychology with the macro stories of culture, which is what I was trying to do with this book, where it was about you know this moment of choosing to dedicate, but it's also about all of society and things like this. And what he says, the paradox of choice is basically this paradox where we want some choice. We want more choice than no choice. You know, no choice, being in a dictatorship, having everything chosen for us is bad. So we start thinking, oh, more choice is good. So we go more choice, more choice, more choice, more choice. But then at some point, 
too much choice actually starts hurting us. And it seems counterintuitive because you're like, why, if we're fully in charge, how can there be anything bad about having more choice? Well, he lays it out. One is when you have so many options, you get decision fatigue, just choosing between rye bread and wheat bread and white bread at every single choice of your life. You know, he talks about buying jeans, you know, acid washed, straight cut, tall or slim. And he's like, I just want jeans. The second part is you're haunted by all the options you didn't choose. So if you go to a party and they have chocolate or vanilla or strawberry ice cream, you actually are happier with what you chose than if you go to 31 Flavors, Baskin Robbins, and choose from 31. Because when you choose strawberry, you're only haunted by, I could have chosen chocolate or vanilla. But when you choose Rocky Road at 31 Flavors, you're haunted by the 30 other flavors that you could have chosen. And it's not just that you're haunted by real options. You're haunted by all the Frankenstein options you create in your head. So if you're like, what city should I move to? And you're grappling with all the cities in America. You imagine a mythical city that has Miami's beaches and DC's museums and Austin's food and Nashville's music and Chicago's architecture, Boulder's hiking. And you're like, that's the city I want to live in. But there's no city like that. <laughs> right, um, right. And finally, because you have all those choices, you're held accountable for all those choices. So think about the time when you have to choose a restaurant in a large group of friends. No one wants to be the one that chooses because they're accountable if the restaurant is bad. Whereas if you flip a coin or if there's only one restaurant in the exit that you took off the highway, it's easier and everyone has more fun because they're like, this is what our life is. This is the restaurant that's here and we're going to do what we can. Whereas if you scoured Yelp for an hour and then someone chose and the restaurant was bad, you feel like, oh gosh, I'm a total failure. So that's what Schwartz lays out in Paradox of Choice. Hey everybody, it's Paul. If you're enjoying this conversation with Pete Davis and you find interesting the concept of the Paradox of Choice, as explained by Barry Schwartz, the psychology professor who wrote that book, The Paradox of Choice, then I know you'll enjoy my conversation with Barry Schwartz, the author of the book we were just talking about. I've put a link to it in the show notes, so only after you finish listening to this highly enjoyable conversation with Pete Davis, click that link and check out my conversation with Barry Schwartz. That link takes you back to my website. If you're listening to it in an app you'd rather stay in, then look for my conversation on August 18th, 2020, almost a full year ago, with Barry Schwartz. Now, back to Pete Davis. You talk about infinite browsing as sort of the defining characteristic of your generation, but I think it applies to all of us who are alive today. You would be either a millennial or Gen Y. I'm not sure how old you are. I'm straight in the middle of millennial. Okay. So I'm middle-aged. I'm Gen X. It's certainly something that when I was your age, when I was 32, I was, what is the term you use for somebody who moves around constantly trying to a boomer. I was a boomer. I was bopping around all over the country. I lived in like six different cities trying to find that place where I was going to find whatever it was. And it wasn't until I moved back home to Atlanta, Georgia and put down roots that I was like, oh, okay, now I'm part of a place. I'm really part of a place. How does the paradox of choice really relate to what you're trying to get across for all these choices we have in our life? Well, it's one of the factors that leads to browsing. I don't think it's the only one, you know, but it is a major one, which is that the paradox of choice is a major part of what's behind our browsing. And in our era that we're in, there are just so many more options than there were 100 or 200 years ago for everyone. And the appearance of options because of social media. Yes, that's exactly it. I actually had a deleted chapter because it was going too far afield. But (laughs) one of the chapters in the old book was about the technology that led to the explosion of options. And 
one of those aspects was it was travel. So the transportation technology led to an explosion of options because, you know, it used to be the furthest you could get in a day was like the speed of a galloping horse. And now, like, <laughs> if you really needed to, you could fly across the world. You could figure out a way to do that and get there. But it's not just you going other places, it's other places coming to you. So in that last chapter, you know, I talk about what was the experience of reading a telegram for the first time from around the world, then radio, then the movies, then the TV, then the internet, then not just the internet, but the internet in your pocket of all of your friends, you know, showing everywhere that they are constantly inundating you with options of where you could be before you've made a commitment. You see all these things. And after you've made a commitment, you're constantly given grass is always greener and FOMO experiences. And, you know, then at the same time, there's been a decline in some of the external cultural factors that would have guided people in making their decisions for good and for ill that those have declined. Thus, culturally, it's much more placed on the individual. What do you want to do with your one life? Whereas maybe 100 years ago, it would have been like, here's what people like you tend to do with their life. So again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's a reality of what's facing us. So you can go anywhere. You're inundated with everywhere. You're told culturally it's up to you to decide. And then there's a decline of the attachment entities, the types of mentors and elders and heroes and cultural institutions that might say, hey, here's a place to show you how to attach or here's some pressure to help you like think about things you should join up with or get attached to. That's a recipe for, you know, infinite browsing mode. And so uh, part of my message, though, the big message of the book is that not that it's bad that we choose, or it's not that our choices don't matter. It's just that we way overestimate the substance of each choice, and we underestimate the substance of commitment itself. So we think, I have to choose the perfect option of what cause to fight for, a place to be, or person to be with, or institution to join, or career to take, or craft to take on. We think I have to get to 100% on that because that's like the big thing I'm going to be doing for a long time. And we think the power is in the analysis of choosing that specific thing. But my point is, if you get most of the way there, commitment itself has the power. Putting down roots has the power much more than the thing itself. Because when you put down roots, you start rewiring your sense of meaning to like the thing more. You start rewiring your identity and then you feel like it becomes part of you. You start meeting people who are connected to that thing and they become your friend circle. It starts opening itself up to you by showing you more of what it is, whether it's a person or a place or an institution. And it grabs hold of you and has its own momentum. So, But that will never happen if you stay in analysis mode the whole time when you're like, is this the right thing I should be doing? It only opens up when you dive in and say, this is what I am doing. You quote Ed Batista from Stanford. He says, we should focus less on making the right decision and more on making sure our decisions turn out right. Amen. Absolutely. That could be the summary of that point I just made, basically, which is, and he's probably saying it in like all the skills you need to follow through on something like, don't worry about, you know, who you choose to marry, worry about the skills of marriage, or don't worry about what idea you choose to start a startup with, worry about the skills of startup. But I'm saying something even easier, which is that just the act of deciding will have a bunch of natural consequences that will make it turn out much more right than you expected. 
related to that is a pretty special point you made about the meaning of the word dedicate. Can you dive into that? Part of this book is standard self-help book with tips and tricks and psychologists and, you know, the classic thing, you know, here's a study we did where we handed people this and we discovered this about human life. And I have a lot of that in there. You didn't, mention, you didn't even mention the marshmallow test once. And I was very Oh proud yeah, that is one of them. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the classics. But I also believe I wrote this book mostly because of this deep belief that I believe there's something spiritual about commitment, that there's something that some might call holy. If you want to be more secular about it, you could call it magic, which is that dedicate. And it really clicked for me when I discovered the kind of definition of dedicate. So the word dedicated has two meanings. One, we use dedicate colloquially to mean like sticking at something for a long time. You know, she was dedicated to the project. We also use dedicate to talk about making things holy. You know, they dedicated the chapel. They dedicated the synagogue. They dedicated the special building in the government. They dedicated the, you know, new Capitol Dome or whatever. And I just don't think that that's a coincidence at all, that there is something holy in dedicating yourself, in dedicating your time. It's when you dedicate a building, you're saying this isn't just a building. This is something really special. And we're all coming together to have a ceremony to say something special is happening now that this is done. And I think when you're dedicated to things over the long haul and you really reflect and consciously dedicate yourself, you're doing the same thing with the building of your life. You know, you're making your life kind of have the sanctity to it. And that our commitments are, you know, by layering on time and just going deeper, finding purpose, finding community in these things you're adding a certain magic to your life. That's the deeper timber of the book. Part of deciding who you want to be or where you want to be is deciding who you don't want to be or where you don't want to be. And you talked about this concept of desecrating versus consecrating. And the way I found it relevant to my personal journey is that I spent a lot of time in the corporate world. I always had this dream to be a creative person, a comedian and a writer. And what I found is that Quitting your job is the easy part, right? Like desecrating the thing, the path you don't want to be on. And desecrating is a strong word, but choosing what you don't want is the easy part. It's the commitment. It's the saying like, I'm on this path for the rest of my life is the hard part. I'm on this multi-decade path and I'm not going back. There is no plan B. You call that consecrating. Yeah, you know, this is all part of a larger thing, which I call the liberation dedication two-step. And I call it a two-step because I really don't want them to be in opposition to each other. I actually just think they are in sequence, basically. When you enter a period of browsing, and this is often, you know, for most people, it's in their 20s. But for other people, it might be in their midlife crisis, you know, at a different point hey, in their life. Hey, come on, no, and, and I don't say that as it's a negative <laughs> thing. You know, it's a midlife, uh, a midlife browsing. You know, the first step that they make movies about is the step of liberation. And we have a lot in our culture about liberation. You know, I, I talk about the movie Billy Elliot. I don't want to be a coal miner. I want to dance ballet. You know, it's like the ripping off, people leaving. Jerry Maguire is a perfect example also. Yes. And sometimes it's the end of the movie is like 
they finally like tell the person, you know, I'm not this anymore. I am this. They give the epic speech. Sometimes it's the beginning of the movie. You know, they quit their job and then they have to discover and really fully quit the culture. We have a lot to help us with that. You know, and I talk about desecration. You know, we know all the tools that help us with that. In politics, sometimes, you know, like when you need to take down an old regime, it starts with the jokes in these creepy old regimes that needed to be destroyed. It began with the comedians who started loosening the grip by saying, let's start making jokes about the dictator or something. And then over time, you can rip yourself out of it. But if you just liberate yourself and then you just stay there, you're stuck in infinite browsing mode. You're stuck in the hallway of life. You're stuck on the home screen. You clicked out of the movie and you are now on the home screen with all the options. And we need to teach people about how to complete the two-step. We need to talk about the dedicatory virtues, choosing, patience, imagining an alternative, having reverence for something else. When you've practiced irony and desecration for so long, you have that strong muscle. But there's another muscle, which is being awed by something. Another muscle, which is dealing with the messiness of something that doesn't perfectly fit you. Another muscle of not calling BS, but saying, oh gosh, you know, I got to put my head down and deal with this. And you free yourself, but then freedom for what? Part of the message of this book is we need to learn the art of dedication again, too, and have that be part of our culture, too, because we don't want a society where we're all living in the hallway of life. We want a society where we find our rooms and uh, settle in. So I should get a face tattoo, in other words. <laughs> yes, um, that was my favorite interview. I wanted to interview all walks of dedication. So, you know, I interviewed Evan Wolfson, who was on a 32-year crusade to help legalize gay marriage. I interviewed Ken Burns about making these 10-hour documentaries, but I also wanted to interview someone who got a face tattoo. <laughs> and, you know, what was that commitment like? And didn't regret it. That was a very important part. You know, a lot of people get face tattoos regretted. And what was special about Amy Jones, who actually ended up being a tattoo artist herself, is she said getting a face tattoo gave her the biggest sense of calm she's ever had in her life because she was grappling with whether she wanted to be a tattoo artist or not. She was going back and forth. Should I go re-enter the corporate world or should I join this kind of like tattoo-ish world of tattoo artists? And she said she decided she really wanted to go all in on being a tattoo artist. She got the face tattoo and she said, guess I'm never going to be a Walmart greeter <laughs> ever again. I'm never going to, you know, it's going to be hard for me to get a certain type of job. I got to kind of go all in on being a tattoo artist now. And it was because she, you know, got this commitment that gave her, you know, burn the ships behind, you know, going back. Now, for the parents listening, don't think you have to hide the book from your children <laughs> because the message I say in the book, and I believe this, is we need to get proverbial face tattoos, not actual face tattoos. Right. The boat burning metaphor is a good one. That is a bridge burning metaphor. As I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, when would this book have been most important to me as a human being? And I think that somewhere around 32 would have been a good time for me to read this. Well, I've been in browsing mode on the big issues of my life, my profession, my relationships, my geography. And without being ham-handed or browbeating, you give the reader permission to evaluate what's important to them and who they want to be when they look back on their life. Not to say that I'm done with those decisions. Hopefully I'm done with the big ones, right? But like, it just seemed to me like that would be a really good time for the person to read that book. I am turning 32 this year in October. So <laughs> I actually, you've got my age down, right? You're ahead of the curve, dude. I mean, let's be clear about that. You know, I say at the beginning of the book and I really believe this and I'm not BSing here. It's like, 
I, most of the wisdom in the book is not me. It's interviewing these long haul heroes. I've pre-butted the argument that I'm a hypocrite because I have some browsing in my past too. Um, because I'm just a big fan of these people. Here's my thing I would say, you know, to the 32 year olds, fellow 32 year olds out there is I didn't put this in the book, but it's been something I've kind of realized from doing all these interviews about the book is when we keep our options open, we think we are treating our future self well. The spirit of keeping your options open is a real kind of, there's a whole message we get from older people all the time. Treat your future self well, you know, don't just like burn everything down for your present self and then leave your future self out in the ditch. We think we're doing a good thing when we keep our options open. We think we're leaving a gift to our future self. Oh, I'm not going to bind you. I'm going to let you have as much freedom as you can, 42-year-old self, 52-year-old self. But the message of this book is good intention, but actually the biggest gift you can give your future self is binding them. The biggest gift you can give your future self is your future self will get to be celebrating a 10-year anniversary or get to be an elder in a community, have their project launched off the ground if you bind them now. And so I really don't want this book to be like a finger waggy moralist book. It's, it's not. It's or not saying at all. kids these days. And I'm glad you noticed that. You know, I tried really hard in that. And and I think the spirit with which we keep our options open is a positive spirit. It's it's being future oriented. It's being kind to our future self. But my whole message is I've got a message from a bunch of future selves out there, long haul heroes at the end of their journey, who say the gift that they most appreciated from their younger selves was that moment of commitment. It wasn't, you refused to bind me down. You just mentioned your concept of long haul heroes. So I want to get to that. Let's start getting there through the answer to this question. Say you were to go out and survey 10 six-year-olds and you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? How many of them do you think would say a solid citizen and a trustworthy neighbor? <laughs> I think a lot of them would say probably a YouTube star. When I was a kid, it was always like marine biologist, firefighter, and astronaut, and basketball player. I bet some of those are similar with like YouTube star mixed in with that. You know, part of this is a bit of a hunky door. You know, this is a psychological story about making commitments, but it's also a cultural story. And part of the goal with this book is to have a cultural intervention and talk about different people we should hold up and different aspects of the people we do hold up, we should hold up so that we can start having six-year-olds thinking differently about that. The original title of the book was going to be Solid People. It ended up being too weird, so we went with Dedicated. But the deep idea there, Solid People, is when you are asked, you know, Jewish people have the best phrase for this, a mensch. When you ask, like, who's a mensch in your life? who's a solid person in your life, what you describe them as is usually, oh, the people who keep their commitments, the people who make a lot of commitments, who have a lot of relationships with things outside of themselves and who are loyal and patient and show up for those commitments. In the end, that's who we learn to respect. In the end, those are the people that have the biggest impact on our society. In the end, those are the people that created all the things we hold precious whose commitment led to all those things. And so we need to hold that up. So part of the goal of six-year-olds is to spark their imagination with some cinematic flair. So I don't know if you can really teach them to love solid people yet, but hopefully by 16-year-olds, we can start teaching them that. The point of the question, obviously, is to say, you know, we're training kids at a very early age to be ladder climbers and prestige seekers. Very gross generalization, obviously. But we really have an educational system that gives out awards and recognition in a way that encourages people to seek 
prestige and ladder climbing. So how does education play into the model that you're talking about here? Amen. Yeah, I, I talk about in the book, and I really believe in this, that there are two different types of education. You know, there's education for advancement and there's education for attachment. I don't think they're necessarily in opposition. I think they can supplement each other. Said the Harvard Law School graduate. Yes, I know. I know. Well, you're driven by, you know, what is the thing that will allow you to have the most options later? And that's what led to some of these things. And part of my experience actually in these fancy schools has actually been the wake up call that this isn't what we should be doing, you know? And I don't know if uh, I would do it again. It's a lesson kind of hard learned by seeing the reality of when the rubber hits the road of these places that is status worth that much. But education for advancement is basically education for giving you as an individual the tools you need to ladder climb and keep your options open. Education for attachment is about education that partially attaches you to things outside of yourself, ideas, people, places, causes, institutions, and crafts that instills, in the words of the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, a little bit of reverence and duty within you. And that sounds, you know, on its face, it might sound a little like fascistic or something like uh, the goal of education is to attach you to specific things. But think about it this way. Basically, like think of the favorite teachers you had. It's rarely the ones that just said, I'm here to give you all the tools you need to advance. It's often the ones who taught you and introduced you to something outside of yourself that created a relationship between you and something that you had a bit of reverence and duty towards. The first teacher that said, I want to teach you about the climate crisis and I want to get you to be a lifelong fighter to mitigate it. The first teacher that said, I want to introduce you to Nas and like show you about the history of hip hop and how you can join up with that. The people who taught you the craft, I talk about in the book, this stage crew teacher that was beloved by this cult of misfit tinkerers in my school that taught everyone the craft of engineering and robotics and stage lighting and things like that and made them like obsessed with that, made them lifelong engineers and tinkerers and and scientists and things like that. It's the people that attach you to something and make you believe that there are things in the world worth not fully subsuming yourself in, but entering into a relationship with. And I didn't put this in the book, but I've been thinking during these interviews, you know, what is the number one message we give to kids usually these days? It's your goal is to change the world. And I'm actually think that's partially part of education for advancement, you know, and I'm not against changing the world. I don't think the goal is to have the world stay the same, but I think a better message might be if you teach kids to love the world, build a relationship with things, particular things in the world outside of themselves, they'll naturally change it, you know, if there's a problem with it. Why do so many people who grow up wanting to change the world end up not changing the world? It's because they never learned to love the world and they never learned that the world is worth working on, even if it involves some sacrifice for themselves. So I would say part of the message of education for advancement is teaching kids that the most important thing is we're here to help teach you how to love, enter into relationship with the world, that it's not just about you. And again, that's not a finger-wagging moralist thing. It's the most exciting thing in existence to enter into relationship with something outside of yourself. All right, we talked about some of the obstacles to commitment earlier, fear of regret, fear of association, et cetera. Let me read the scariest passage from your book, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit for brevity. (laughs) A horror book. This actually kind of scared me. It scared me on a personal level, and I was like, ooh, what does this mean to me, all right? 
Here's the quote. Association forces us to reveal more of ourselves, to commit alongside other people. We have to reveal our weaknesses, strengths, and capabilities. The longer we associate, the more we reveal what essayist Tim Kreider meant when he wrote, if we want the rewards of being loved, we have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. And I was like, holy shit, that is so true. (laughs) And that's why marriage is so hard because- Before you get married, I think to stay alive, to keep yourself from just blowing your brains out until you're 25 or 30 or 35 or however old you are when you get married, you have to construct this shell around yourself to say that all my imperfections are normal or okay. And then you get married and you throw yourself into a relationship with this other person who observes you day by day and he or she can tear you down because... They don't subscribe to the same myths you've created about yourself. And the opposite is also true. And so one of the fears of commitment is actually the fear of seeing who we are through the eyes of other people. Yes. I'm sorry about how how terrifying that is, but I am so glad you drew that out. And that I put at kind of the end of the fear of us. You know, I talk about my identity might be threatened. My reputation might be threatened. It's annoying to work with people and go to meetings. But that's the deepest one, you know, like when all that is solved, there's still what Kreider called the mortifying ordeal of being known. And, you know, to just make it concrete, my wife knows all the flaws and she knows not only all the flaws, all the flaws that I hide. And she knows all my mechanisms of hiding them to everyone else. And that's like the most intimate version of this, which is, well, I guess even more intimate is your kids really know all your flaws and all your wife's flaws and your relationship flaws. So that's the most, but that's just marriage and family. Any type of commitment will reveal some of that. So I love what Matthew Crawford writes in Shop Class as Soulcraft about craft commitment. When you say I'm the best basketball player or whatever, Often you commit to basketball because you're kind of good at it. You're above average without any practice. Maybe you're tall or you're just good at shooting or dribbling or whatever. But then if you join a team and you stick with it or you, let alone for the few people that do, build a career out of it, eventually, look at the NBA. You know, every member of the NBA was the best person in their town at basketball. They were the superstar. They have like medals. Everyone in their town says, oh my gosh, you know, that kid went to the NBA. But then when they're in the NBA, the limits of themselves are eventually revealed and they have to just come to terms with that. I can't do this when I've played 50 minutes and it's the fourth quarter or and it's overtime. I run out of steam. I don't have the capacity to do this anymore. Or if you're in a cause, you have comrades in the cause and you're working on it over 20 years. Eventually, all your personality quirks are going to come out. Eventually, all the things that were charismatic when you gave the opening speech are going to be revealed. You know, this is part of it. But in the end, we're all together in the truth. And when you have these long haul heroes, when I talk to them and I describe long haul heroes are people that have you know worked at things for a long time, committed to things for a long time. It eventually leads to a certain level of peace because you are who you are and it has been revealed. And anyone who's been in a long, happy marriage knows that, you know, I am who I am. I can't hide this anymore. We are all together in the truth about who I am and who they are. And there's a piece that comes with that after the terror. So what do we do about all this? What's your prescription for humankind here? Well, well it's just a level. small ask, by the way. I just... <laughs> and I was ready to jump right into it. On the individual level, 
the message of the book is dive in and make commitments, become a more dedicated person, you know, start working towards becoming a more solid person. If you're 60% or 70% of the way there, do it. And the commitment will work itself out. So it's a message of encouragement to the individual reading the book. Become a citizen or a patriot or a builder or a steward or an artisan or a companion, which are the words I use to say commitment to causes or places or projects or institutions or crafts or people. I have an American flag sticker on my car. Does that make me a patriot? I would say, you know, it's more about that might be one star in the constellation of patriotism, but um, I have in that section, let's go much deeper on what that means. And it involves sacrifice and not just the sacrifice of specific people we've decided are going to fight for this country, but the sacrifice of everyone in a democracy of holding the tension of being part of a big thing together. On a cultural level, how do we become a more dedicated people as a whole? You know, I have a bunch of prescriptions for that. You know, it's not going to be one big thing. One is just simply culturally, we need to tell dedication stories more. We need more Hollywood movies about dedication. We need more awards and and raising up, to, especially to young people of heroes that worked at things for a long time and, you know, made an impact over the long haul. We need to have our education be not just education for advancement, but education for attachment. We need to have an economy that structures itself in a way that allows for the love of particular precious things, not just the love of money, and keep money in its place doing what it does well, but not having it wash over everything, you know, sucking everything into its logic of how it does things. Morality-wise, we need... We need to not just have a morality of indifference where everyone does their own thing and the best thing you can do is not bother anyone else, but actually have a more honor culture in our cultures of morality, which is honoring people who live up to the public spirited mission of our culture, having people who take the social risk of chastising people when they do something that's hurting people, reclaim that old sense of profit, not profit as in someone who can predict the future, but profit as in someone who calls a community back to its mission, that makes coherence out of incoherence, that when an institution has died or gotten rusty or gotten corrupted or you feel like the rituals are just going through the motions, they breathe life into it again. These are all parts of, and I go into detail of how some of these can happen, but that's kind of a broad overview of how we can become a more dedicated people. And it's what we need to preserve and expand and achieve all the things that we want to in the coming century. The first step, that's why I call this a prerequisite for everything else, is being dedicated to things larger than ourselves over the long haul. Along those lines, when are you going to run for office? And which (laughs) office are you going to run for? I actually work in politics in my day-to-day life. I do policy. And I actually have a good way of assessing politicians. And I'll say it this way. I'll admit this is not a direct answer. Um, <laughs> See, you're already way, you're qualified. You're totally I'm qualified. Already, I'm prepared to be a politician by not answering directly. <laughs> I think we need more politicians that are loyal to the places that they are running and that care about those places and care about improving those places if they win or lose. Make a distinction between careerism and professionalism in politics, because I think that's what you're kind of saying. right? Yeah. You know, I don't know if I have this exactly right, but I think it's in broad strokes, right? I think a majority of Congress people, when they lose election or retire, continue living in Washington, D.C. 
which is crazy to me, mostly because they've become a lobbyist or they've gotten so used to the lifestyle in DC that they actually were never loyal to the place that they were in the first place. And so careerism is basically thinking about your work life as just about yourself. Professionalism is thinking that I am joining a profession that has a public interest mission that is larger than myself. And my career might be part of that. You know, this isn't like fully everyone, you know, subsume yourself in something larger than yourself, but at least have a relationship that what you're doing in your career is aligned with or in the spirit of working towards advancing the public interest mission of your profession. So the public interest mission of doctors is to heal Lawyers is to achieve equal justice under law. Architects, it's to build beautiful, life-affirming spaces. And for politicians, improve, cohere conversations, navigate the differences of, ameliorate the problems of particular places. And that's your professional calling. What I love is more politicians that actually live up to that and live up to that even when they lose. So, The politicians I respect the most are people who've actually made sacrifices for their careers for the sake of their professional mission, who've even when they've lost, kept working as a community organizer or kept working as a as an advocate in the town. You know, that's why I raise up Jimmy Carter. We've had some other presidents, I won't name names, who kind of either retired to private life or created large foundations that let them fly around to Davos all the time and give talks. And we've had a president, Jimmy Carter, who had the most embarrassing loss. Um, You know, you're this big, new, hot, new, young thing, and you lose after one term. And what he decided to do was solve the guinea worm, eradicate a three million person disease that he's now gotten in the span of his life after his presidency down to like less than 50 cases. He decided to raise up one nonprofit, Habitat for Humanity, and bring a lot of light onto that. And he's decided to do international peace and election protection work through the Carter Center. And he's done that slow and steady walk, living out of Plains, Georgia, the place that he loves, continuing to be involved in Georgia politics, even after he lost. He didn't say, I'm going to take my ball and go home. He decided to keep being involved in public life. And I think that's what we should measure politicians by. So long-winded way of saying, if I ever want to run for office, the way you should assess me is, have I in the time before that? been loyal to my beloved region of Northern Virginia, which could use some more love. I look forward to your one-term career as a politician. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, like, I'm a huge fan of Jimmy Carter, too, as a human being, but I think him living his values is exactly what led to his defeat by Ronald Reagan, because he was talking about austerity, and Reagan comes in and talks about, you know, the shining city on a hill, and Carter is like, turn your heat down in the winter and turn your air conditioning down. And he was right. He was totally right. But that's not what anybody wants to hear from their politicians, unfortunately. Yes. Well, you know, I believe culture is able to be transformed. Nothing is written in stone. Things have changed before. And he hit a wave in the culture that was heading in the other direction of where it was going. But maybe we could change our culture to have... um, voices like his be heard a little more. (laughs) Look, I'm with you. I'd like to see a large number of shorter term politicians who are focused on key values and more on service and less on their own careers. So amen. we're running out of time. Our last question, as always, do you feel rich? Yeah, I would say, yes, I do. The one thing I haven't been far into my long haul yet, I'm early in it, but I feel alive with purpose I talk about in the book, the three things that come with commitment are purpose, community, and depth. On the other side of regret is purpose. On the other side of missing out is depth. 
and on the other side of the fear of associationist community. And I'm in the early days of my long haul, but I already feel alive with purpose. I already feel new friends coming into my life from my long haul work. And I already feel getting deeper and deeper and feeling the joy of mastery from coming from that. And that brings a lot of joy. And one could describe that as being rich. So I love it. Pete Davis, the book is called Dedicated, The Case for a Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing by our guest, Pete Davis. Pete, where can our listeners find out more about you? You can go to PeteDavis.org. And if you want to go directly to the book, just go DedicatedBook.org. And I'm on Twitter at Pete D. Davis. Pete, thanks for your time. I love the book. I highly recommend it and look forward to seeing lots of great things from you again in the future. Thanks so much for having me on, Paul. Well, I enjoyed that conversation and I'm glad that I know who Pete Davis is because I think he's bound for big, big things. And I do recommend his book, Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. I think that he's taking some things that are not terrifically sexy and he's making a very sincere attempt to remind us how important substance and dedication and commitment are, if not to our communities and to ourselves. I admire his quest. Let's get to takeaways. First of all, dedication is a holy thing. I wonder, does the word holy, does that mean that you are prescribing to one definition of a deity or not? Because I felt like his distinction is holy as a non-secular word. I don't know, call it sacred. I mean, I'm splitting hairs here, but okay, dedication is a holy thing or it is a sacred thing. I think that's true. Your dedication to your marriage, if you have one, is a holy thing. Your dedication to your children, if you have them, is certainly a holy and sacred thing. But then even a dedication to a craft, a dedication to getting better at something that is worth getting better at with no attempt to monetize it, with no attempt to seek secular rewards or extrinsic rewards, that that's a holy thing too. You do something because it's worth doing and worth doing well, and that has its own rewards. Secondly, I found his point about not quitting organizations to be highly relevant because, you know, I've bailed on the religion I was raised in, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and a lot of time reflecting on why, and I feel like it's the right choice. But when you leave a religion, you remove yourself from a community of people, even if it's just a place, an identity that you go every Sunday. That does come at an expense. I'm reading this book called Religion for Atheists by Alain de Baton, and it's really interesting to read a book about a guy who doesn't believe in God talking about the benefits you get by belonging to things. And Pete's message is that much more relevant because some organizations that I'm a part of and believe in their core work have recently been politicized. And I find myself wanting to throw my hands up in the air and be like, well, screw you guys. I don't agree with this political part that you're doing right now, but I still believe in the core work of the organization. And I think my tendency to walk away from that is something I need to check. That if this organization is worth my time before, it's worth my time trying to work through the issues they're having right now for the end purpose of perpetuating the very worthy work that they do. So thank you, Pete, for making me think about that. Lastly, the rewards for commitment are purpose, depth, and community. Purpose, depth, and community. A year or two after moving back to Atlanta, I remember talking to my friend Al Bott, who is part friend, part therapist, part professional coach. And I was saying to him, you know, Al, I'm just not finding my community. And he was like, Paul, you do not find your community. You create your community. And I think that's deeply, deeply true and important to remember. If you're sitting there, oh, just kind of bouncing around from one social group to the other, that if you're waiting for people to bring you into their community, you're going to be waiting for a really long time. If you want friends, if you want community, you have to reach out. 
You have to create community. You want people to hang out with, invite them over, have a barbecue, do things like that. It's your turn to create community. Really enjoyed the conversation with Pete Davis. Thanks for sticking around all the way to the end. If you have a minute, write me a kind review on one of them podcast apps. Make it the Apple podcast apps because that's the one that really matters. And share crazy money with a friend. Really enjoyed doing these. Super glad I got to meet Pete. Have a great week. We'll be back next week with former NFL player Muhammad Masakwai. He's got a great, compelling, scary story that I know you will find interesting. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.